his education, <laughs> but uh, had a wonderful time with Mary, and we're just thankful to the Lord for them and for so many others like them. And we shared with you in Sunday school about our ministry, and I know last week you saw, turn my sound, oh, I gotta unmute my sound. Cindy's got my back this morning, and I need somebody to have my back. There we go, unmuted. Thank you. We're going to have to work together on the PowerPoint slides, too, this morning because my remote always reaches and it doesn't reach this morning. So we'll just deal with the technology as it comes. Now I did something back here. Okay, now we're cooking with wood. Okay, maybe. I'm feeling it falling off again. Sorry about this, guys. Okay. Um, anyway, so you saw the video of our ministry last week. And we're thankful for the opportunity you had to see that. We're thankful for the opportunity we had to share in the Sunday School Hour about our ministry. And we're going to spend our, some time together in the Word uh, during this time together. And I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. To Matthew chapter 14. And we're going to share together around the theme of doubting disciples. You can advance the slide for me if you would please. And in Matthew chapter 14 and Matthew chapter 28, we're going to consider a couple of questions. We're going to consider the question of how does Christ respond to us in the middle of our doubts? How does Christ respond to us in the middle of times of fear and anxiety in our lives? And then, after we introduce things with that question, we're going to spend most of our time considering this question. What do we do? when we find ourselves in another place of doubt? What do we do when we find our ourselves in another place of fear, another place of anxiety? How should we respond to the Lord during those times? And we're going to use Matthew 14 as an introduction to that, and we're going to spend most of our time in Matthew chapter 28. I'm going to read from Matthew chapter 14, beginning at verse 22, and I want you to ask yourselves some questions uh, in your own hearts and minds while I read. I want you to ask yourself, who are the people here? Uh, what are the situation and circumstances in which they find themselves? How are these people responding? And then, how does Christ respond to them? So who are the people involved? What are their situation and circumstances? How are the people involved responding? And how is Christ responding to them? Let me read for you, uh, beginning at verse 22 from Matthew 14. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there, but the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost, and they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. Then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. Now, turn over to Matthew chapter 28. 
Matthew chapter 28, the last chapter of the book, another familiar passage of scripture. This account takes place toward the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was after uh, his death and resurrection. It was in the same region, the region of Galilee, uh, where Peter walking on the water took place. And I want you to ask yourselves the same questions you had just a few moments ago. Who are the people involved? Uh, what are the situations and circumstances? How are they responding? And how does Christ respond to them? So Christ had appointed the disciples to meet him in the region of Galilee at a specific time in a specific place. And let me read for you beginning at verse 16 of Matthew 28. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for who you are, for your faithfulness. We're thankful for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death on the cross in our place, for his resurrection, for his intercessory ministry. And we are thankful that you did not leave us to ourselves to figure out life, but you revealed yourself to us in your word, enough of yourself so that we might see our need for you and we might be able to come to faith in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that as believers, you haven't left it to us to make sense out of the day-to-day, -day, but you have revealed enough of yourself to us in your word so that we can follow you in faith. And we pray that as we look into your word this morning, that you would help us, help us to see your heart and to see your will for us in the middle of times of doubt, in the middle of times of anxiety, of fears in our lives. Help us to be able to see more clearly the heart of your Son, our Savior, toward us. Help us to see more clearly our responses to you in times of doubt, in times of anxiety, in times of fear. Thank you. In your Son's name, amen. Now, I'm not going to do this, but suppose I ask this all to stand again. And once we were all standing, I said this. If you have never been through any time of doubt, any time of fear, any time of anxiety in your walk with the Lord, you can sit down and the rest of us will remain standing for the remainder of the service. Would you sit down? Now, I want you to listen to how I worded that because I said it that way on purpose. I said, you can sit down and the rest of us will stay standing for the remainder of the service because not only would I need to stay standing because I'm the one preaching, I would need to stay standing because I've been through times of doubt, anxiety, fear in my walk with the Lord. And there are often two questions that weigh on us during those times. The question of, what does Christ think of me now? What's Christ's heart toward me now? And then, especially if you've been through this before and you thought you had it tackled the last time and you find yourself back there again, you start asking yourself the question, what do I do? What, 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 how am I supposed to respond right now? And we want to consider those two questions this morning. You can advance the slide for me if you would, please. And I think you can give it one more space bar and we'll be set. Perfect. Uh, so to answer the first question, how does Christ respond to us, his doubting disciples? We have examples of it for us in the Word right in front of us this morning. How is it that 
Christ responded to Peter in his doubts. How is it that Christ responded to his disciples after they had seen all of his work on the earth and they still had their doubts? How was it that Christ responded to them? He had a heart for them that rescued them, rescued Peter from the waves. He had a heart for them that grew them. Now, if you're like me, you might have another passage of scripture that comes to mind in the middle of times of doubt that at first read seems to contradict, seems to get in the way of what we see in Matthew 14 and Matthew 28. You don't need to turn there, but I want to read the passage from James chapter 1 because at first read, we're going to see how it's, that's not the case, but at first read, it can seem to contradict, it doesn't, but it can seem to contradict what we saw of Christ's response to Peter and to his disciples in the book of Matthew. Let me read the verses. Maybe these verses come to your heart in times of doubt. Let's address them so we can see the full picture. James 1.5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's an encouraging verse. What does it say? When you lack wisdom in times of difficulty, in times of trial in your life, what do you do? You talk to the Lord about it. You ask him for wisdom. And who are you asking? You're asking a God who is generous, and you're asking a God who doesn't scold his children when they ask him for wisdom. But then you come to verse 6. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if this passage of scripture applied to Peter while he was walking on the water, where would you expect to find Peter today? The bottom of the Sea of Galilee, right? Because what's the text say? That person is not going to receive anything from the Lord. But what happened? Peter cried out to the Lord. And what did the Lord do? Rescued him and grew him. How do we bring this together? Well, we bring it together in two ways. Right in the text, James talks about this being a different quality of doubt. James, the person that James is talking about in verse 8, is a person who's double-minded, a person who's two-souled. Think of it this way. person in the midst of trials and difficulties who part of the time focuses on following the Lord and trusting the Lord. And then, when that doesn't seem to be working, turns and focuses on trusting self and figuring out things for self and leaning on self and following in the ways of the world. And then when that doesn't seem to work, turns back to the Lord, turns away from the Lord, turns back to the Lord, turns away from the Lord. That person is double-minded. And quite frankly, if you've ever been in that place in your life, you know you probably wouldn't recognize an answer to prayer if you saw it. Because when you're trusting the Lord, you're praying and trusting in the Lord and his agenda. And when you're praying and talking to the Lord in times of trusting self, you're kind of pursuing your own agenda. So there's a different quality of doubt here. It's also seen in the word for doubt that James chooses. You drill down on that word a little bit, you do a little bit of a word study on it, and you find out that it's a stronger word than the word used in Matthew. It's a word for passing judgment over or choosing to judge the direction or the work of God in one's life. Now, thank the Lord if you're here today and you find yourself on that path in your doubts, in your anxieties and fears, where you're you're that path where you have walked with the Lord, but now you're turning away from the Lord and you're following your own plan, you're following your own agenda, you're passing judgment over God's way and turning from it. Thank the Lord there's a way back. 
And if that's you this morning, I'll stay as long as you want. I'm sure the pastor would stay as long as is necessary after the service to talk to you about that. What we're spending our time on this morning are times of doubt, times of anxiety, times of fear where you're seeking to follow the Lord. And you again find yourself in that place of doubt. You again find those anxieties clutching at you and gripping at you. You again find fear starting to feel like it's overtaking you. What's the heart of the Savior toward us during those times? You can advance the slide for us. We saw it in the book of Matthew. The heart of the Savior toward us during those times is to rescue us. His desire for us is to rescue us and to grow us. Now, Matthew chapter 28 rightfully called the Great Commission. You look at the words that Matthew records for us of the, uh, the commission that Christ gives to his disciples, and I want to suggest to you that those words, in addition to commissioning us to make disciples, also talk to us about how do we respond to the Lord during times of doubt. What does, what does Christ do, what does Christ expect of his disciples in the middle of their doubts? He expects them to keep listening to him. He expects them to keep leaning on him, to keep learning from him. And so you can advance the slide for us. What do we do when we doubt? How do we respond in the middle of our doubts to the Lord Jesus Christ? God wants us to be people who keep listening to the Savior, keep leaning on the Savior in the middle of our uncertainties, in the middle of our doubts, in the middle of our anxieties, in the middle of our fears. And you notice as Christ speaks to these worshiping, doubting disciples. We should pause there for a minute. Look at what the text says again in verse 17. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. You know, we ought to be encouraged that in the middle of our doubts, fears, and anxieties, we can still worship the Lord. Those two things can exist at the same time in our lives. We can turn to him in worship. We can turn to him in love and still have our doubts. When, when, when Christ speaks to his disciples, calls on them to listen to him in their doubts, where does he start? He starts by declaring, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. So if you'd advance the slide for us, what do we do? How do we listen to our Savior in the middle of our doubts, in the middle of our anxieties? We trust his authority. He declared to his disciples who were worshiping him and some of them who were doubting him, all authority, all of the right to control, all of the right to command, all of creation has been given, has been entrusted fully, finally, never to be taken away. To whom? To Christ, to me. And it's an authority that he says, I have in heaven and on earth. And the, the worshiping, doubting disciples needed to hear that because they'd seen his authority exercised on the earth. They had seen his authority exercised in submission to the Father on the earth. They had seen others who desired him to use his authority for their purposes. And he had seen him exercise authority wisely, compassionately, graciously, justly, mercifully. And he's saying to them, the same authority that you've seen me exercise on the earth is not going away when I go to heaven. Now, for sure, Christ exercised his authority during his time on the earth differently than he exercises his authority now. And thank the Lord that there will be a day where he returns and where he sets up his kingdom on the earth and he will exercise his authority again and express it in another way. But the reality is what he said to his disciples is true for us today. All authority 
has been entrusted to Christ, never to be taken away from him, and it's an authority has in heaven and in earth. Our children, Timothy and Johanna, Tim and his family are in Macomb, Illinois, and Johanna and her family are in Mesa, Arizona. It's supposed to be 116 degrees today in Mesa, Arizona, and as we were getting ready to go to bed last night, we got a text from our daughter saying, our air conditioner broke. <laughs> so <laughs> they, uh, they had a very restless, not sleeping night, and they're going to uh, part with some money today to replace an air conditioner when the compressor went bad. Anyway, so they, they, when they were younger, when they were younger, one of their favorite things to do every year was to go to Grandma and Grandpa's house for vacation Bible school. It was a family tradition. All the cousins went to Grandma and Grandpa's for vacation Bible school, and they loved it. And the parents thought it was a pretty good deal, too. Our daughter, Johanna, especially enjoyed it because she was the oldest of the female grandchildren. And as the oldest of the female grandchildren, she was grandma's helper for the week. And so she helped grandma with meals and helped grandma with cleaning the house and all the things that were a part of that. And along with the responsibility that she received, she also received a fair amount of authority from her grandmother. And Johanna really liked the authority. And she especially liked the opportunity to tell her big brother what to do for a whole week long. Well, most good things come to an end, and that one did, and it was time to come home. And there's one queen in our house, and most of you have met her already. There were a few tussles uh, with Johanna reshuffling herself back under the authority of her mom and the authority of her dad and not being able to boss her brother around anymore. He tolerated it for a week. He wasn't going to tolerate it for two. And there were some tough spots. It took this dad a couple of years to figure out the rhythm of when should I engage with this and when should I let Sherry handle it and when should I just let her figure this out on her own. And I'm not sure I ever had it fully figured out. But aren't you glad that it isn't that way with Christ? He's always in charge. I don't know how you started your Sunday morning. Hopefully you didn't start it by opening a newspaper or scrolling your gadget for the news. Maybe you did. Uh, if you did, you look around us today, and just in the news, it, it can be hard to find evidence he's still in charge, right? And sometimes you look into your own heart to try to find evidence he's in charge, and he's still the one who has the authority. And sometimes the evidence internally, and the deliberations internally, you don't find much evidence there as well. But thank the Lord that in our doubts, in our challenges, in our difficulties. We don't have to look outside into the world around us for evidence he's in charge. We don't have to look inside for evidence that he's in charge. He's stated in his word. He's the one who has all authority. It's been entrusted to him never to, take, to be taken away. And in times of doubts, when we're not sure what's coming next or what's happening next, in times of anxiety and fear, we can trust the reality. We can trust the truth that he's in charge and he has nothing but good in his heart for his children. What do we do in our doubts? We keep listening to him. We keep leaning on him. What do we hear him say? Trust me. I have all authority. Notice what happens next. We listen to our Savior by trusting his authority. We listen to our Savior by being obedient to his commands. And you can advance the slide if you would, please. Think about what takes place here, okay? So Christ had ministered with these men all of his ministry life. And they had witnessed his miracles, they had witnessed his teaching, they had seen people in awe at Christ's teaching and his wisdom in his teaching. They had gone through 
seeing him die on the cross and the angst and the confusion and the despair of that experience. They had, they had heard the resurrection. Some of them had seen him in his resurrection and they had gone through the confusion and the joy of that. And now they come to this place, to this time, in faith to meet Christ. And in their doubts, in their doubts, what does Christ do? He keeps moving forward with his plan. Now, think about this for a minute. I'm going to step far away from the pulpit. You'll understand why in a minute. You know, I think that if I was Christ, now you know why I'm away from the pulpit. If I was Christ, at this point in time, I might have stepped away and had a prayer time with the Father, and my prayer time might have gone something like this. I think we need another plan. Really? We're going to use these guys after all they've seen and all they've done. Some of them are still doubting. Okay, what's plan B? That's not how it was. That's not how he works. What happened? In the middle of these disciples worshiping with some of them doubting, what does he do? He moves forward and he entrusts them with the Great Commission. And he encourages them to move forward in obedience. What does he do for us in our doubts, in our anxieties, in our fears? What does he say to us? Keep obeying me. Keep engaged in your part of the work of the Great Commission. For sure, sometimes times of doubts, sometimes times of anxiety and fears come with new limitations in our lives. We can't do everything we used to do. But you notice as you look at the Great Commission, it really is inclusive. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The central command, make disciples of all nations. See people direct people to the gospel, encourage them to turn and to trust the gospel, and do that as you live your life. Do that as you're going. For some, that means staying in a location. For some, that means a move in their life. For some, it means several moves in their life. But wherever the Lord places you, wherever the Lord directs you, we're to make disciple-making the orienting purpose of all of our relationships. Let's think about that for a minute. You know, before you meet someone, you know some of the most important things about them that you will ever know, okay? Before you meet someone, before you can ever make out facial features, before you know their name, maybe if you only encounter them for a minute, passing by them, shopping or driving by them in traffic, you still know the most important things about that person. If you know them from the perspective of God's word, what does God say of every person we meet? God says of every person we meet, that person is created in his image. What does God say of every person we meet? God says every person we meet is a sinner in need of a savior. So this person is created in God's image. This person is a sinner in need of a savior. We also know this person, before we meet them, before we know their name, this is a person for whom Christ died. So we know they're a sinner, excuse me, we know they're created in the image of God, a sinner in need of a savior. We know Christ died for them. We also know that they live life in a fallen world just like we do. And when you live life in a fallen world, not to, not to be um, flippant about it, but fallenness happens, right? You live life in a fallen world and your body doesn't work the way it used to, and some of us are more familiar with that than others. You live in a fallen world and fallen people sin against each other. And so every person that we meet, before we know anything else about them, we know the most important things about them. We know they're a person created in the image of God. We know they're a sinner and that Christ died for them. We know that they're a person who suffers life in a fallen world. The question is, do we see people that way and let what God says about people set the agenda for how we respond to them? 
For sure, God says other things about people too that become important in making sense out of them and how we respond to them. But those key things ought to guide our first responses and the word ought to guide all of our responses to people as we let disciple-making become the orienting purpose of our relationships. And then consider this. Aren't you glad that you get to have a part in the work that God is doing? And aren't you glad that you're only a part of the work that God is doing? In both of those things. You think about across your life, there may be one, two, three, four people who had more of an influence or more of an impact on you coming to Christ in your walk with the Lord than other people. But I suspect the longer you think about it, the longer the list is going to become of people across the path of your life that God has used to be a part of you becoming Christ's disciples and growing daily in your following of Christ and growing in your discipleship in Christ's work. And aren't you glad for those people who had a part in your life? And I'll say it again. Aren't you glad that you get to have a part of the work of God? And aren't you glad you're only a part of the work of God? And as people come to know Christ as Savior, what happens? They're commanded to be baptized, to identify with the death and resurrection of Christ, following their salvation by believer's baptism, and to become a part of a local church where they can serve together and where what takes place? Teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. Teaching the truth for the purpose of observing the truth. Teaching the truth for the purpose of living out the truth truth to be lived, truth to be understood, truth to be taught, and truth to be lived. Why is that important? Because truth not taught can't be lived, right? You can't live something you don't know. So you have to have the content of the truth. You have to teach the truth. But knowing the truth is a beginning point. We know the truth to learn the truth, to understand the truth, to live the truth. If we went back to James chapter 1, that would become immediately clear to us when James says, don't just be a hearer of the word, be a doer of the word, because if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word, what are you? You're self-deceived. And so there is this teaching of the truth of the word for the purpose of living the truth. I'm old enough to have lived through the what would Jesus do bracelet fad. And that was helpful to some people who knew what the Bible said about what Jesus would do. I had some friends who wore that who didn't know anything about their Bible, and so their thought was, okay, Jesus would probably do the best that I am, and so I will just do the best I know how to do, and then I'll do what Jesus would do. That doesn't help. Why? You can't live the truth if you don't know the truth. So truth has to be taught, because truth is lost when it's not taught, but truth has to be lived, because not only is truth lost when it's not taught, truth is lost when it's not lived as well. Teach the truth to live the truth. So, I usually look around before now. You're like most people. You wear glasses. Most of you do. I, sh I suspect there's a few of you that are wearing corrective lenses that you poked into your eyes this morning. That's okay, too. What would happen? What would happen if I said this? I want, don't do this. I want you to take off your glasses, and I want you to trade them with your neighbor for the rest of the day. How would that go for you? Now, I will tell you that if Sherry and I traded glasses right now, uh, I don't think we would probably make it to lunch because <laughs> we couldn't see where we're going. And if we made it to lunch, you would either want us to be the first people out of the parking lot or the last people out of the parking lot because you wouldn't want to be driving anywhere near us. You know, in times of doubt, in times of anxiety, in times of fear in our lives, it's like we put on a different pair of glasses and we don't 
We don't see life God's way. Have you ever been in those places of doubt, anxiety, and fear where you've said to yourself, really, again, I thought I had this solved. I thought I had this taken care of. I just need to slow down, stop, get this all figured out, and then go on and serve the Lord. If you've ever been there and you've ever done that, you know what I'm saying about what happens. In times of doubt, fear, anxiety, if you just stop following and serving the Lord, what happens? You're, you doubt your doubts and your doubts get bigger and you start being anxious about being anxious and you start being fearful about fearful about being fearful. And it's like you lock yourself in a jail cell and you pitch the key as far away from you as you can. But you put on God's glasses. What do we do in times of doubt? What do we do in times of anxiety, in times of fear? There may be new limitations. There may be ways this changes and looks different. But what do we do? We stay engaged in our part of serving the Lord. We stay engaged in our role in the Great Commission, trusting Him, believing Him, moving forward, slower at times, more challenging at times for sure. But what do we do when we doubt? We keep listening to our Savior. We keep leaning on Him. We keep following Him. We do that by trusting His authority. We do that by staying in obedience to His direction in our lives. And then we also listen to our Savior by resting on His promises. And you can advance the slide for me if you would please. Look how Matthew records the end of this conversation that Christ has with His disciples. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So what's Christ saying to his disciples here? He's saying, I'm with you. And if he was looking for efficiency of words, he could have said that in four words that would have been translated in English, I am with you. And that would have made the point. But he wasn't looking for efficiency of words. He was looking for them to have an opportunity to have this, as it were, ringing in their ears, reminding them of his presence. So what does he do? He slows down in the conversation and he says, lo, which is just a word of interjection that is, behold, listen to me. Polite way of get, drawing attention, a polite way of saying, this is really important, what I'm going to say next. So he says, lo. And then... In, 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 in the language of the New Testament, he could have said, I am with you in three words. Because the language of the New Testament is a language that changes its spelling of the words to show its part of speech and to show uh, connection to pronouns and those types of things. If you've ever learned a language like that, you immediately recognize that. And so in the language that this is recorded for us, he could have simply said, I'm with you. And it would have only taken three words. I am could have been one word with you, two more words. But he doesn't do that. He adds more words. And in a language where the spelling of the word changes to show the part of speech, you're not reliant on word order. You didn't know you were going to get an English lesson or a linguistics lesson this morning, did you? You can change. You, you, we rely on the word order. We usually put the subject first and then the verb and then all the objective stuff afterwards, unless it's a question, and then it all gets flipped around. But in a word where the spelling is, in a language where the spelling is changed, the word order doesn't have to be that way. The word order can be there for emphasis. So my slide didn't get scrambled on the screen because as, 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 Christ, as Matthew records what Christ said here, it's recorded this way. Listen. I truly with you am. It was made very personal, very relational. Christ saying his disciples, don't miss this. I myself, I truly with you am. That little change of word order made a point. But as Matthew records this, Christ didn't stop there. I truly with you am 
always, each and every moment. And that's enough to make the point, if it was you, if it was me, but Christ knows us and he gives us more. So I truly with you am each and every moment, always, even to the end of the age, even till the end of time, even till the end of the plan that I have. And I suspect the disciples probably didn't connect the dots on this. Maybe Matthew did as the Spirit was bearing him along and writing the book of Matthew. But you remember the words of Christ on the cross and some of those words, the words, it is finished. That word end here in the text of Scripture in front of us, if you were looking at the language of the New Testament, you'd see it was spelled close to the same as the phrase on the cross, it is finished. It's from the same word family. What's Christ saying to his disciples? What is he saying to them in the middle of their doubts? What is he saying to them in the middle of their anxieties? What is he saying to them in the middle of their fears? Listen, don't miss this. I myself truly am with you always, each and every moment, until the entire plan is finished. And when the entire plan is finished, where are those who have placed their faith in Christ? With him. What do we do when we doubt? What do we do in our anxieties? We trust him when he says, you can rest on the promise of my presence. You can move the slide forward. Ponder what the presence of Christ meant to his disciples with me for a few minutes. This is really something we could do the whole rest of the afternoon. The presence of the disciples, the presence of Christ in the life of the disciples meant peace. Think of Peter walking on the water. Think of the calming of the sea. You can move the slide ahead one more. The presence of Christ meant provision, the feeding of the 5,000. So I worked my way through college in dining services. And I learned a lot in dining services. One thing I learned in dining services was, well, two things. People like what they want to eat, and they like what they want to eat when they want it. So things don't go well. Sorry about this. It's been a long time since I had trouble with this. Okay, now we've got it. Hopefully where it will behave. So worked in dining services and realized people like what they want to eat when they want to eat it. So the feeding of the 5,000 really resonates with me because what do you have? You have a long day of teaching. You have the disciples coming to the same conclusion I would have come to. It's time to send these people home. People are getting hungry and they need to go home and eat. What does Christ say? Christ says, well, let's feed them. And what do the disciples do? They take inventory. And they take inventory and there are what? Five loaves to fish. And if I was one of the disciples, I would have said, yep, send them home. Time to eat. What does Christ say? Let's sit them down. Okay? That's creating expectation. This is a place, had I known all I knew about dining services in college, this is a place where I would have probably looked at one of my fellow disciples and said, guess we're going to follow him to the death on this one, guys. And so set him down, he blesses the food, and the disciples start distributing these meager rations, and the 5,000 men and all the women and children were there, eat till they are full, and they gather up the leftovers, and they take inventory again, and what's the inventory? Twelve baskets left over. For sure, the presence of Christ with the disciples meant provision. Think of Peter. You can advance one more. Think of Peter. I'm going to follow you all the way to the death. And you can just almost hear Christ. Oh. 
No, you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And what happens? He denies Christ. The rooster crows. One of the gospel writers says they, they, Peter sees, looks at Christ, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. When it came time for Peter to be restored, who pursued whom? Christ pursued Peter. Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? The presence of Christ produced purity in their lives. We could go on and on and on in this. The presence of Christ made a difference to the disciples. For sure, they didn't always experience the dramatic deliverance like the sea being calmed, the the, the fish and bread being multiplied. They always experienced cleansing and turning back and the Lord pursuing them in their sin. But for sure, they didn't always experience his presence the same way but his presence was always with them. You read the book of Acts, they went through hard, difficult, almost incomprehensible things in their testimony for the Lord, but who was always with them? He was. And you think about it. Whether you're here, whether you have loved ones who the Lord leads around the globe, whatever he does with your life, whatever he does with the lives of people that you know and love and moving them about in their great commission work, it's true for you here. It's true for whoever in Canada, in South America, in Ukraine, in Australia. We could keep going. What's he say? Listen. I truly, with you, am each and every moment until the plan is finished and you're with me. You can advance the slide, please. What do we do in the middle of our doubts? What do we do in the middle of the challenges and anxieties and fears of life? We keep listening to our Savior. When we listen to him, what do we hear him say? We hear him say, all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. We can trust him when he says that. He's the one in charge, and his plan will not be thwarted. It will not be rushed. It will not be slowed. It will be completed when it's to be completed, and we can trust his authority to accomplish that plan. What do we do in our doubts? We keep obeying. We keep following his word. We keep obeying his commands. Chiefly, we stay engaged in our part of the work of the Great Commission and seeing people come to Christ and encouraging and edifying one another in our walks with Christ. And we can do that with what? With a confidence that his promise is true. Lo, I am with you always even to the end of the age. And we know where we will be when the age ends. We will be with him. Let's pray together.